Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What's going on, everybody? Hope you are having a wonderful week so far. Podcast time. This week on the show is one and only Anton Partridge. Anton, um, how I came across Anton, he owns a record label called Good Company and Get Together. Um, Good Company is the label managers of all we have is now, which is my record label. Um, however, getting to know Anton over the years, he's worn many hats in the industry and been a huge influence of many records um, worldwide. He's signed some insane records, including Fisher Losing It, Medusa, Peace of My Heart, and some records from years ago. He's been in the industry a very long time and has a lot of experience of producing records, A&R in records, publishing on the records. So this podcast is a really interesting one. Um, great conversation. I loved it. So without further ado, Anton Partridge. Anton Partridge, what's cooking, man? All is good, sir. All is very good. How about yourself? Yeah, really good. It's, the sun is shining in the UK. I'm happy. I know, right? I mean, it's it's a rarity and next week's the blazer. Yeah, it's supposed to be a heat wave, right? Yeah. I feel Hotter like... I feel like I'd still rather be in Ibiza. Yeah, hotter Yeah, I feel like this podcast is always the most British start to any podcast because all I talk about is the weather every single episode. <laughs> <laughs> but that's bit... what we do anyway. It's been lovely doing the podcast. Thank you very much. Ah, thanks for coming on. It means a lot, man. It means a lot. Likewise. How was um? How was IMS? It was really good. It was. You know, just like Miami, mm. as you all know with Miami, just great to see everyone again yeah. after two years of a hiatus. And it was lovely that it had been moved to Destino because, well, it was lovely in one in that one aspect that it had been moved to Destino because it's a lot more contained, mm. sort of sorted the waifs and strays that normally just turn up with a laptop and a pair of headphones and follow mm. you around for four days until you finally submit and, and listen to their dodgy <laughs> demos. Um, so there was less of that, you know, the downside is that the island opening early, I mean, it just got told that an hour ago, actually, because we had, everyone had nightmares with taxis. Mm. It was, it was ridiculous getting from anywhere to anywhere. Yeah. I mean, one crew left amnesia on the Friday night, Saturday morning at five and got back to the hotel at 8 30. Oh. You know, it was that bad. I mean, there was three, there's 300 cabs on the island at the moment until May 15th when another 600 mm. turn up. Uh, it's, it was um, outside, it was brilliant outside of transportation. Because Uber is not there yet, is it? No, Uber got kicked off the, like, run off the island <laughs> when they tried. No one's, no one's fucking around with that, like, taxi mafia. Taxi mafia are brutal in in um, yeah. Ibiza. I remember, like, how tough the police cracked down on, like, illegal illegal taxiing as well. And it's like, yeah. they're pretty rough. Oh, there was, there was one on the walk back from Amnesia. 
someone was trying to offer anyone 500 euros just just to drive them back and they were like no jesus no. christ yeah, I was about to go and rent a car and come back for them. Well, it would have been cheaper. Could have made some money. <laughs> <laughs> they need those electric bikes or scooters or whatever out there. Could you imagine that? though? It'd be fucking carnage. I know. It'd be hilarious, though. I feel like there's an Instagram account that we're waiting to open for that. Like, that would just be... I mean, if you're going from content. the old town to Bossa and stuff like that, those would be great, I reckon. Mm. If you're going up and on the motorway... It's like no chance. <laughs> the way the cab drivers drive over there as well with scooters. Wait, in, everyone in the mix. drives over yeah. there. You know, let's not let's not like just pick out the cab drivers. <laughs> roundabouts. They still don't understand how to how to work roundabouts. And when especially this is not being disrespectful to the Italians, but in August in Italian month, roundabouts are just carnage. Where my very first time in Ibiza having only just passed my driving test. And it wasn't my very first time, but the first time I was working there, which was 89, I was driving the head of the PR company I was working for to the hotel. We hired the car from the airport. I was going round the roundabout. I'm on the other side of the road, so that's daunting enough as it is. And there was a car just reversing back around the roundabout <laughs> because it missed its turning. <laughs> like, this shit's the Wild West. Oh, I love it. I love that island. It's just, it's changed so much over the years, though, hasn't it? Compared to what it used it to has, be. But it, yeah, but you know what? I try to detach myself from what I knew it was mm. because, as an experience, like for the GC crew, yeah, yeah a lot of them, it was their first time out there, mm. and the island blew their minds. Yeah, and you know. I, I kind of tried my best, even though it's quite difficult at times, not to be the old bastard going, oh, I remember when it didn't have roofs on these clubs. And, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, and I remember when High was space. And High is actually great now. You yeah. know, it's, a, it's an amazing club. Um, but it's not space. Yeah. And if you knew space, then, of course, you're going to reminisce for that. But if you don't, it's like, fuck me, what yeah. a place. No, it's it's definitely they they changed it massively. Um, mm. Is it sounding weird for you? Because there's something going on. It's not sounding weird for me. You okay. sound lush and deep, and you know, the know long lost love child of Barry White. <laughs> My lovely deep voice. Um, yeah, man. I don't know what's going on. Um, yeah, like. I was there, my first experience, how old was I? I was 16 when I first went, so that was 2006. So it's changed a lot then. And even when I was living out there, it changed a lot massively. So I was out there when I was working at Space when it was 24 hours on Sunday. And then the year after it changed to the 12 hour and they, they stopped the, like, there was like a curfew. And even that, like, everyone was like, oh, it's not as good as the good old days. It's, it, it never is as good as the good old days because they, they, that was when you were in your teenage years and you were having the best time of your life and you were doing whatever you weren't supposed to be doing. And, and that's, that's what it's about. And everyone I is still having... I out slightly after you said you were 18 16. in 2008. 16 oh, yeah. in 2008. 16 in 2006. 2006, yeah. I'm like, okay, great. I was 16 in 86. Great. <laughs> <laughs> fuck me all right yeah it's pretty rough isn't it i didn't yeah. realize how much older you were because you don't look that old mate you look great it's it's total thank you firstly but it's total preservation of yeah bass sambuca 
Um, it seems to it seems to kind of like it's a preservative. Yeah, it's a preservative. Yeah. 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 That's... I, like inside, I'm dying slowly or quite rapidly. <laughs> Have you ever had your liver checked? Yeah. Do you know what? I like. Listen, I am going for the full Monty checkup because every year since being from about 45, I do that normal blood test, get everything checked. Yeah. Everything's always fine. And I'm like, you know what? I need a deeper dive because it can't be the way I've lived my lifestyle. <laughs> Have you had the finger up the ass yet? I mean, that, what do you mean? Weekly or no, yesterday? Just, just, or? just, just the check. Obviously I beat her. Of course it will happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Always, you know. Yeah. Um, it's amazing that I can't remember who I was speaking to. Oh yeah. I don't want to say his name, but he, I'll tell you after, but I was talking to him the other day. I've actually had him on the podcast and he was like, I had a check and my liver and kidneys are like practically not working. So I've had to give up alcohol. He's like had to go completely teetotal because he, he's DJ and parties really hard and always has done, but it's amazing. what. Well, I kind of have to self-police because I don't know how, but I've, I don't suffer from hangovers. Really? So I have to, yeah, and have never. And my wife didn't believe it when we first met. And yeah. then she realized, oh, actually you don't, which is handy for her because I'll get up in the morning. Now I'll get up in the morning with the kids and yeah. I'll make some breakfast for everyone and do all that sort of mm. thing. So she's like, oh, this is a Brucey bonus. Yeah. But yeah, you know, and, and there is a term of being partridged because, you know, you go out, go hard, drink until whatever hour in the morning, and then I'll be up in the morning doing, my, doing the work going, where is everyone? Is it the fact you don't Is it the fact you don't get hungover or you're stubborn as fuck and aren't willing to accept that you're hungover? Because my dad does that. I don't, genuinely, honestly, don't feel shit. Wow. You know, the only thing that happens is... I feel tired mid-afternoon. Yeah. yeah. And could easily, like, I be some taxi driver, go for a long siesta. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I never feel shit in the morning. Some people have said it's because I'm pissed all the time, but, you know, I, I definitely, I refute that. Yeah. It's just most of the time. <laughs> so what was what was your first time in Ibiza? What was, what was it doing? Well, outside of the... I went there twice with a local, with a neighbour... And their families when it was like fiesta hotels in bossa yeah and actually i was just reminiscing of the story with nick hawks who is the founder of uh xl well not xl that was richard russell but they're doing the dance element of xl's prodigy and everything mm. like that and then went on to form positiva yeah and i first met him 80 is it 87 or 88 at one of those holidays when it was non when it was like non-dance related and he was the resident DJ in the jungle bar, which was shots, yeah. drink games, a, a log over a swimming pool that you had to back, you know, it was all of that sort of thing. But he played all of the stuff that we loved at the time, whether or not it was, you know, back then, the sort of soul fusion, UK soul stuff of loose ends and yeah. Kim Mizell and Kim Mizell, British? I don't think so. But all, all of all of that then, and the soul to soul, and it's like so we just gravitated towards that bar. And then the next year when I went back, no, that was eighty eight because then I got I dropped out of art college, and my and my first job in the industry was in the music industry was for a PR company called uh, 
Nipsey Mead, mm. and they did um, they did the PR for this thing called the Ibiza Music Festival, which was at Coup. And I mean, it was it was so random. It was like Norman Cook as um, Beats International, Pasadena's um, Bridget Nielsen when she wow. entered her recording career phase. You mm. know, it was doing the PR for all that. So. I took out at the time Smash Hits, Record Mirror, yeah. all of those people, and was like, "Oh my god!" An experienced space, mm. Pasha, and was like, and even then, I mean, we were fortunate enough to be on guest list because we were there on a, the press trip. But even then, I remember Pasha being something like thirty-two. What worked out to be thirty-two quid to get into, yeah, and that's like eighty-nine. That's expensive. And you're like, that was yeah. I mean, as far as inflation goes, it's probably held its... It's held its <laughs> Nothing's changed. It's still fucking expensive. Yeah. What was Pasha... not put the door prices up, but they have with the bar prices. Yeah, Pasha must have been much smaller then as well. Well, all of the clubs must have been much smaller. Yeah, but also bigger because there wasn't table service. Yeah, true. So with that whole thing in Pasha where it's like the amphitheater, mm. that was just people up there dancing. Yeah. And then the floor, mm. and you walked in, and it was just electric. Now that whole area is just 10, tables. 15, 20,000 pound tables. Yeah. When did it change? When did the table service change? Can you remember? Oh, not, do you know what? I can't. I remember, I remember experiencing table service in the UK for the first time when a mate of mine shared a house with an actor that was really hot on TV. Yeah. And we went for a drink. We went to this club in Knightsbridge and I remember picking up the menu and there was a bottle of vodka for 250 quid. And I'm like, you jaw dropping. Yeah. And, and my mate actually, no, not even jesting turned around and went, yeah, don't worry. All the mixes are free. (laughs) (laughs) That must, so was that before the EDM kind of phase or was that, it was before. yeah, yeah. 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 The EDM phase accelerated it. Yeah. Like nothing before. Everything became glam and glitzy and yeah. the big names wanted to come in. And, and you know, it's Kathy Getter that really sort of was the height from what I saw on the island mm. of the table service thing because the A-list celebs would turn up for Fuck Me, I'm Famous and she was phenomenal in yeah. that VIP area. She would make everyone, even though they were already a star, feel like even more of a star in the evening. Work the tables, here's a bottle on us, do this yeah. sort of thing. And it was just, you know, that, that it wasn't just like, get in the corner, we're going to absolutely rob you, and, you know, we'll mm. come when we're ready. Yeah, It was just proper VIP treatment. Yeah. And she, she, she just personified it at the be- at the beginning of of fuck me i'm fuck me i'm famous that night was really special on the island i remember when it yeah. first started and it was really special it kind of changed into something kind of changed into a bit of a beast towards the end of it but it was def- that was you're right it's definitely the part of in the island where it was like look who i am i'm at this party yeah 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 but you know i i I didn't mind that. I mean, no. I love a big commercial tune as much as I love an underground record, right? So I didn't mind going and seeing like Sven at Cocoon, at Cocoon yeah. while on the Monday night, the Swedes were playing Pasha yeah. and it was just pure entertainment. And I mean, I used to do the Swedes on a Monday night, 
put my bag behind their merch desk, leave there at six, pick up my bag, go straight to the airport and then straight to work. Mm. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was brilliantly. And like when you go and see Calvin at Ashwire, in 2019 when it was last open and you know some amazing like like nick fanciulli's night dance or die was bloody brilliant but then you see calvin's night and there isn't an inch to move Mm. and there are people on people's shoulders and it's just pure entertainment Mm. you know they're singing every word to every one of his records yeah you're like do you know what i love that i love that it's like this is a different audience but they're they're lapping up dance music yeah this is the thing in america where i find i when i first started touring in america it's very different to the uk where the crowds mix between them so you would have like a tiesto fan and you'd have like a seth troxler fan that were exactly the same person and in the uk you wouldn't necessarily get that so much maybe you wouldn't now i don't know but back then you wouldn't but you're right like what Calvin's done is pretty fucking amazing, isn't it? It is. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And especially now that, you know, he can just create a pseudonym and do whatever he wants. And, yeah. you know, that's the place that he's at. But it is. And it's, you know, it's always been tribal. You know, it got it got very silly for a while mm. when sub-genre after sub-genre of a main genre was created, yeah. first and foremost, to sell records on Beatport mm. and put them in a certain category but then those people only followed that yeah and you're like no i'm not going to deviate from what i love they're like well the whole thing about for me about music so long as it doesn't matter if it's nirvana aerosmith or a dance record if it's got a soulful element running through it it doesn't have to be a soulful vocal but it's 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 it's, there's something that connects Mm. to me you know, the the very industrial, whether or not it's heavy metal or even dance music, I struggle to connect with. Yeah. That's interesting. So you're not into like the whole industrial techno kind of vibe? I'm, I, I love going in for a brief moment. Yeah, yeah. You know, go in a couple of hours, but be there for eight hours. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, no, I can't do that. I agree. Like, just fucking give me a vocal. Give me a vocal occasionally. And I'm happy. Like, that's the thing for me is like, give me something to latch onto. Give me a melody or give me a vocal or something to be like, come on, we can take a break from, from the drums for a bit. And it's tough though, isn't it? Because when you're push, when you're mixing different genres, when you're trying to do that in techno or other genres, it's hard to kind of fit anywhere. Yeah. Especially in this scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. If I you're... mean, the person that I saw on Friday, she doesn't quite go, you know, industrial heavy, but Tisha was amazing. Mm. You know, it was like this groove that got heavier, that got lighter, that was consistent, that, you know, something dirty would come over the top or a big piano line would come over. Mm. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't multi-format by any means, but it didn't feel like one lane. Yeah and sticking to that lane entirely. I think it's super important to do that. I think for me, like as a DJ, that's so, you have to read the room and you have to see what actually needs to be played. Like not, you don't always have to play the same thing. No, but, but also the, 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 the shortening of DJ sets plays into the hands of that, you know? Yeah, totally. You know, it's like you know, the longer set you've got, the more of a journey you can go, go on. 
and you know growing up whether or not it was the Haas yeah uh god what was it golden at Shelley's and Stoke with Sasha mm. and you know the orbital raves around the M25 it was a huge mix of yeah. music in any one set at anyone's any one given time and but then even going to the opening early days at the ministry when they didn't have a bar and it was Justin Burtman and um but no, Justin yeah Burtman and Burt Bevins yeah uh, that were the residents and then Humphreys would come in and just mm. do all night for nine hours yeah. and and Knuckles would do the same and just, uh, Todd Terry playing six hours of nothing but his own records then when he mm. was just you know Todd is God and still is but it's like every record he put out was just a bang yeah and just playing that. and it was it was just a journey where I always remember Morales when he had the a cappella. He hadn't mixed it yet, but he had the a cappella for Ten City, My Piece of Heaven, mm. and he just off reel to reel. He just played the a cappella. Mm. He'd gone really heavy, really beat orientated. That red zone sound of yeah. the, the like squelchy noises got really dark, and then just took it down and went into an a cappella for two and a half minutes in the club with all the lights out, and it was That's just amazing. Amazing. I mean, I'm absolutely amazing. Wow. Yeah, you don't really get that often nowadays, do you? Yeah, I've got the time to. Yeah. Unless you know, you're lucky. I, I was half tempted to try and catch Solomon all night at Pasha on Friday night, mm. but it was a mad, it was a roadblock outside, and it would have been even worse inside. Yeah. And like those moments where you get a DJ doing all night, all night or or, you know, a minimum of three hours mm. are really magical moments. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I agree. It's it's weird because realistically, do you think we need to stack the lineups as much as we do? I can see why they do because there's so much competition. Totally, yeah, I totally right? agree, yeah. yeah. And there's so much competition and, you know, if you don't and everyone's being very careful with their money, especially now. Mm. But if they think they're going to get more bang for their buck, whether or not it's a club or a festival, mm. because there's more people and more choice to see, then they'll probably go for more choice. Yeah. Because um, everything I'm saying is just sort of reiterating the old bastard format of mm. like, it's not the same as it used to be. Totally. And, and you know, it's, it's that ideally yeah it would be lovely but as a business i don't think that it would be competitive mm. if they had less people on at the festival and they were all playing even a minimum of two hour sets at a festival yeah you know let alone in a club in a club so long as you've got a hard ticket seller holding the headline yeah then you know if you've got that you can afford to have slightly less on mm. you know going that way but there's a, it's, it's like set, billings are rammed and, you know, alphabetical billing is, in my opinion, quite detrimental to the yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's pulling it, it's, it's pulling people through the door for numbers, mm. you know, and I get it. And it's, and it's a risk if you turn around and go, right, well, as a club night, we're only going to have three, day, three DJs the whole night. Yeah. 
There's something that's kind of attractive to me for in that sense, though, where you have a 12-hour night and you have three DJs. Like, it's amazing. I, I, do you think that takes it out of the promoter's hands? Like, it actually means that the promoters actually have to promote? Well, I think I don't know as much because it, to a certain extent, yes, but there's more onus on the DJs that are going to be at that night. It's like, yeah, yeah. that's a real telling point. What, yeah. what, you know, how many people can, can you, you pull, pull through a door? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, the more DJs that are booked in the evening, both across the DJ and the promoter, the risk is slightly mitigated. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've got just a handful of DJs and that it doesn't sell, of course, the DJs will say the promoter's shit and the promoter will be like, are oh, you not as big as you think you are? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's tough, isn't it? Yeah. Fucking music business. And it is. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting this summer. Look, the big stuff is going to, the big stuff is going to fly. The sort of middle ground and the early adopters... I think we'll find it tricky yeah. because there's, you know, money's harder, disposable income is harder and harder. Right now. I agree with you, but I seem to be seeing people not working as much, like the amount of pe- jobs that are going, that are available in the UK and just can't find people to work. And then there's still people buying houses left, right and center. It's kind of weird. Yeah. But the people that are buying houses are ones like, you know, it's you've either already got a house and you've made a lot of money out of it, so you just kind of move it. Or, or your parents have got a lot of equity in the house, yeah. in their current house, and they're going to take that out and yeah. help you get on the the ladder. You know, listen. There's, I don't. You, if you look at a lot of the big events, they kind of all do this: spread the price of the ticket out with mm. Klarna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it Klarna, Klarna, yeah. or Klarna? And, and like do these things and even the ones where you put you book your ticket which is a bit of a risky option book your ticket for a pound yeah you know and pay the rest within three weeks of the event and that's that's a real risky option because if you've only put a pound down you know cancelling yeah four weeks out before the event isn't a problem it's scary you though, know? Isn't it is a promoter yeah. and and i was just reading something yesterday that Spending on credit cards in the last year has gone up in the UK at least yeah. by 800%. Yeah, that, I can quite believe that. It's weird because growing up in the UK, having a credit, like when you grew up, like when I was younger, like a credit card was not a thing. Now. I made the mistake. I made the mistake <laughs> of falling sucker to the over the counter top man. Yeah. Why don't you get a store card? Yeah. And I'm like, yes. And he's loads of really dodgy clothes. And then, you know, it's like, fuck, how am I paying this back? And how long is it going to take? Because yeah. every time I pay something back, it still seems to go up. Yeah. And it was like, and my mum had always, up to that point, not even, yeah, she'd always instilled in me, if you haven't got the money for it, we don't get it. Don't buy it. Right? Yeah. yeah, don't buy it. You know, there were TVs on HP and mm. all of that sort of she's like when we got the money we'll buy the tv yeah, yeah. you know totally. we're not gonna Same. like we never had a credit card and all that stuff. Mm. in fact i only really got a credit card about six or seven years ago yeah you know and that was that was for the business yeah 
And then I got my own because it was like, oh, I can get air miles on this and I can get companion vouchers yeah, and yeah. I can build this one. But if you've got to be like really diligent and disciplined with it where you're like, I'm going to pay this off. Use it as a debit card. I'm going to pay Literally. this off every month. Yeah, because my, my first time going when I got a credit card was America because you can't do anything in America without credit. Like you, yeah. you can't get a phone contract. You can't get a car. You can't get a mortgage. You can't do anything. Um, so I kind of, that was my, America was my first time getting a credit card and yeah, it's, you don't want to get caught with them. They're, they're dangerous. <laughs> I know, man. No, 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 no. How, um, Believe yeah. I want to go, I want to, I want to talk about a little bit about what you do. Um, obviously I know what you do, but I don't yeah. know how it started. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, well, I'll have to give you a, a very abridged version because it's been a long time. And yeah. There's lots of different things. So uh, art, I, I was at art college and um, music was always a passion, but it was probably second to art. You know, I was doing graphic design and illustration. Oh, cool. I, fortunate enough back then that it was a grant, not a loan, mm. but the... The grant that you got was the same if you did art to something that didn't require a lot of materials. Yeah. So I was working every night in Safeways and every weekend in Safeways. And after two years, it was like burnt out. Mm. I was like, I'm not going to pass this. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not, I haven't got the energy to have the creative thought process to, to really push through on this. Mm. And dropped out and did went for my second love, which was music. Um, no one initially hired, was looking for music with anybody with any experience. Got a job at the Institute of Directors, which was this big place on Pall Mall that basically lobbies the government on behalf of businesses. But the best thing about that was in, I was in PR. And the best thing about that was I had an amazing boss called Gordon Leake, and he was the ex-editor of the Sunday Express. Mm. And he was one of those guys that gave you loads of pearls of wisdom, careful who, how you are with people on the way up because you never know who you're going to meet on the way down. Yeah, yeah. All of those sorts of life, you know, enriching yeah like nuggets and and then i did and then i went and then i joined lipsy mead which is the independent press agency that did but they did queen and the associates and all that sort of thing and then i came in and did a load of the, well, what was considered dance stuff to a point there heat wave justin brown mm. i'm guilty of saying oh fab featuring mc parker yeah, which was like a novelty dance record, and yeah, I loved that though because I was like making up these press releases saying Parker, after the Thunderbirds came off TV, moved to New York and hooked up with Africa Bambata, and yeah. you know all this sort of thing, Amazing. and like we had a whale of a time with it. But all all the time whilst I was at that independent uh, PR place, I desperately wanted to be in a major, the most ideal place for me because. I loved what they did was FFRR and what Tongi was doing. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I don't know how I initially met. I made contact with Billy McLeod, the promotions director and nothing was there, but he said, keep in touch. And I just kept on going back in to the point where I befriended the security guard. I turned up one morning at 6am with a balloon company we filled his office full of blue and white balloons that said, give us a job because he's Glasgow Rangers. So he yeah. could only open his door 
like four inches and he had to start popping the balloons like that with these sort of things and then of course with the art background had these vast bits of brown paper that I folded up to look as if they were a 12-inch record and sent to Roger Ames, Tongi, Billy. And when they finally opened it up and said, well, like, why are you snoozing? You've got to give Anton a job, you know, yeah. all this sort of thing. So, and nothing came up there, but when... So none of those job, worked? None of it, well, <laughs> none of it worked directly for them, right? But when a job came up at MCA for a plugger, I mean, it's probably to get me off his back. Billy McLeod was like, you've got you to like, interview this guy. Yeah. And because, and because I was like, it's amazing back then, because I can't imagine this happening now, because I knew I wanted to be a plugger. I loved radio. I loved all forms of it, you know, listening to BFBS and, you know, Kiss, and when it was a, a pirate and LWR and all mm. that sort of thing. It was like... Um, I called up everyone at Radio One. I've managed to get every producer from the daytime shows um, somehow get the numbers. Called them up, going, "Look, I want to be a plugger. I want to go into promotions. I want. Is it possible to come in and sit with you and see what you do? And I, I, I'm sure this will help me when I finally get an interview." Everyone said yes. Yeah. I mean, from breakfast show producer to the nighttime, the head of Capital said yes. So when I finally went for this gig at at MCA, and they were like, do you know what the job is? And I was like, yeah, I've spoken to Mike Childs, I've spoken to yeah. these people, and they're like, what are you talking about? You know, we we just about get calls with them. I'm like, I know, right? I've, I've been in there, I've sat in on the shows, I've done, I've done this That's sort of amazing. thing. So, you know, got the gig at, at, at MCA, did radio promotions for six and a half years, did A&R for another two and a half and it was at that point. I want to I cut you in there. I want to cut you in there just for people that don't know what plug-in means and A&R means. Right. What? So radio, plug-in is, is, the, uh, is the industry term for radio promotions or, or TV promotions. I was radio promotions. So I dealt with Capital, Kiss, because it had been um, legalized, Radio One, you know, and you sort of start as an assistant and work your way through the ranks there and whilst the, whilst being a radio plugger i would like give all the producers tips of what i thought even on dance records tips of what i thought were the records that were hot mm. these are the three that you need to be listening to this is this is that especially when joe wiley was doing the evening session on radio one I didn't have the audacity to do it with Pete because I'm like, well, I'm going to teach him to suck eggs. He's, you know, he's pretty tough. But with people like Joe Wiley that did the evening session Radio 1, her, her producer then, Christine Ball, you know, I just and they wouldn't be MCA records. They'd mm. be whatever. If there, if there was a hot MCA record, fine, that's in the mix. But yeah. it was just what was great that was out there. And then had this reputation. And then there was actually Mark Goodyear on Drive Time introduced a half an hour DJ mix at the end of his show between half four and half five every week though. What station was that on? Radio One. Yeah. And I did the mix oh, cool. every day. And you know, would that really sort of all of the time I was DJing out and doing parties and I was warming up for open fold at the limelight and doing stuff like that. Mm. Um, but I was at home the night before sort of on turntables, vinyl, recording live to that, trying to get it as tight as possible for, you know, 
uh, it was half an hour, half an hour feels a bit long for that. It might have been 20 minutes. You know, trying to get as many records as I could in and deliver that in the morning for Fergus Dudley, Mark's producer, to then broadcast that evening. And so I was getting tons of records. Everyone was just sending me records for that because, you know, it was a huge show. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't signed to Friday nights and Tong. It was a much bigger audience. So... I was getting tons of records and and then I'd started going to the A&R guys, you should be, what are you doing with this? Like, you should be chasing this and chasing yeah. that. And then got went up to A&R, which is ultimately finding artists, records, songs, producers that are deemed worthy of signing and try whether or not it's a one-off, long-term prospect of um, ultimately a major, making yeah. money out of the situation. Um, and I was there for three and a half. I did A&R for three and a half years. And it was a very expensive time for dance records. It was in a boom. And uh, I kind of wanted to go against the grain a bit. And I was like, right, I, these are all great producers. I'm going to go and make records with them. Mm. And made records and came back to MCA saying, right, I want to sign these five records for 1,500 quid a piece. And because they're so used to records costing 50 or 100 grand, yeah. they're like, we don't want to waste our time on these. I was like, well, if you don't want these, you kind of don't want what I am doing and what yeah. I want to do. We and paid me out for six months, and I went off and set up. It wasn't even a label. It was just management. Mm. And it's like used all my radio experience of like, right, I'm going to get these on the radio, you know, and... I kept three of them, two, two the artists wanted to go away with, but all three were top 10 records. What what um, artists were these? What records were these? Emmy, uh, uh, More Than This, which was number two, signed with Luke at Manifesto. Lucid, um, Can't Help Myself, and subsequent singles signed with Tommy at FFRR. And M Matthew Roberts, a Wicked Scouse producer, my, he had a pseudonym, Mighty... Mighty High Revival, I think, or Mighty High 3000, yeah, I think it was, and signed that to Polydor, you know, and all, all were hits. And at a time when people were paying stupid money for yeah, yeah, yeah. records that were already set up, so it really put me in a great position. Um, and then dance hit the doldrums, yeah. you know, and so with some of those producers, we were making pop records for people like S Club Seven, yeah, and yeah, yeah, keeping the business going like that, and then. Just trying to remember what the next step was. Oh, and then started consulting for Sony, ATV Music Publishing. And um, again, you know, first record was Lola Steam. Wow. Uh, Shapeshifters. Shapeshifters, which was a 600 quid record. It was just like, <laughs> you know, it was like, okay, so. And How then, much? That must and, have made some fucking money. It kind of did, unfortunately, and I totally agree with Simon from Shape's opinion at the time, where I was like, if you change a note on that string, right, we'll have all the publishing. Yeah. But it had already gone out as a bootleg. Mm. And it's like, I don't want to touch it. So there was, it did make a lot of money, but it could, it made a lot of money for the original writers, Anthony okay. White and, oh, it will come to me at some point. And, um, you know, but it was a number one record. Yeah, it was great. You know? Yeah, it was, it was just brilliant. And then, what year was that? Doing, oh, it's almost twenty years ago. It's got to be, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it's almost 20 years ago. Um, and then had... Well, I've been involved with Wiley so many times. I'm trying to remember um, what would you do, the, the, the record that he sampled. I had the publishing on that, and that was number two. And I had a great run and, and uh, signed um, We Are The People. Um, Elephant, no, what's her name? Um, Empire of the Sun. Oh, okay. Em yeah. Empire of the Sun, you know, started sort of diversifying in that sort of thing. As Australia was coming through big time with music then, Midnight Juggernauts, mm, yeah. Empire of the Sun, um, um, Sneaky Sound System. Yeah. You know, it was like picking up some of these really big dance pop projects. And then, and then. So, just and also just want to go into that publishing. What's publishing? Publishing. So you've got masters, which is records, and publishing, which is who wrote the record, who was the writer, not yeah. necessarily the performer. So if you're looking at if you're looking at it from a pop context, someone like S Club Seven that I mentioned earlier, mm. right? They they were the vehicle, and you'd have production teams making music, and top liners who essentially are the people that write the lyrics and the melody that go with the lyrics. And that side of things, anyone that wrote the music, lyrics or melody, there's a portion of that of that sale goes to the public. And when you get played on the radio, PRS, it's a performance collection society, every time the radio play, play, pay, plays a record, it pays out. Yeah. And that goes to PRS. So, you know, it's sometimes the people that wrote the record have got nothing to do with anyone that's performing on the record at all. Mm -hmm. And then other times, you know, like yourself, like other people, you know, you write things, you get help in from people, you've like got songwriters, you, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a combination of, of forces that make that work. Yeah. And so the, the, the Sony public, and America, the EDM thing hadn't happened in America and everything that I was doing with dance, like, Sony in America, just nah. And yeah. then over a period of time, I started getting more emails going, really like this, what's this about? I'm like, I think they're going to get this. You know, so went over just before EDM really kicked off. And the idea was for me to be there six months. So I was there New York three, three weeks of the month, London one week, sort of dotting between the New York and London office. And then ended up being in New York for three years. Mm. Um, and it was an amazing experience. It was just it's the it was eye It's it, the, how vast it is. Yeah. And just, you know, I remember someone talking to me, you know, oh, there's a really good girl. She's she's great. She's got this, you know, this girl, she's like a real techno girl. And I'm thinking, fuck, they're, they're talking about techno. And this is amazing. And actually what they were talking about was Lady Gaga. Oh, okay. You know, Interesting. And their definition of what she was doing yeah. early days because it synthesized and like fall to the floor pounding. Yeah. They're like, that's techno before the term EDM had been, you know, invented. Yeah. And whilst I was out there, Christian Tattersfield, who was the CEO of Warners, kept on sort of bugging me to come and do a label at Warners. And I just kept on knocking it back, going, you haven't done dance music for 14 years. You haven't got the right people in Europe. Yeah. You haven't done a contract that is anything less than five albums. Yeah. I I'm all right, thanks. I'm here. And then he being the sort of 
entrepreneur that he was was like, form a label, we'll deal with the label. The label can then dictate the terms and do the, the deal terms with however you want to do it with the yeah. artist. So came back from New York to set up one more tune within Warner's. Um, and for the first year, it was actually, despite everything that he had said, whenever I put a deal memo together to send out a, a contract to an artist, and if it had one option for a single, it still had to go before Leo Cohen, who was the worldwide CEO. Mm. And Leo would be like, what the fuck's this? Where's the five albums? Fuck off. <laughs> and, you know, it was a year of going backwards and forwards, arguing with Leo. And it, it was only until I sort of put it in his the vernacular, in his old hip-hop sense of what yeah. he was doing back in the day, picking up one-off hip-hop records. Yeah. That it was sort of like slightly tweaked with it. And then it was game on. And, and then I ended up having to sort of do the same thing with setting up re, the revitalization of Big Beat. Mm. Um, uh, again, the whole contracting process, finding the right people to work the records for them in America. Um, and it was, it was just a great experience. And I did that for eight years, had some fantastic success, and then was booted out um, with a year left on my contract when I, after my best financial year ever yeah um, much to my surprise i thought all right i've you know got one more year i only said i was going to do it for three years mm. and i was I had been there for eight i was like i really want to do my own thing and i had started good company whilst i was at warner's as a sort of feeder label to go through ada yeah but i i realized quite quickly i didn't have the bandwidth to do a and r for warner's both, and yeah. A&R for the, you know, good company, the feeder thing. And so I stopped that. So when, when I was, I was fortunate enough that when it came to the end of my time, I had made the Medusa piece of your heart record with the guys in the Warner studio. Mm. And the worst thing that could have happened was that Warner signed it and then got rid of me. Yeah. But they just didn't want to know. And I don't blame them to a certain extent because dance was in the doldrums. It was being totally asphyxiated by grime, yeah. hip hop, everything. You know, it is it it wasn't as it was and it isn't as it is currently now. Mm. You know, and and they're like, you know what, I just can't see the business in your genre. Yeah. Um, unbeknown to me and them, that that year the genre would come back with a force. And yeah. the two records that I was very fortunate to start with was Medusa's piece of your heart and Fisher's losing it. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was, it was a real, it was a real kind of roll of the dice in the sense that the day I got told my contract wasn't being renewed, I just exchanged on the house. Mm. I had an eight month old kid and I was fortunate enough to have some offers from other labels. Yeah. I sat down with my wife and I'm like, look, we've got these, we'll be all right financially, but I've always want, really wanted to do this. Mm. Um, which means we're going to initially earn a lot less than we've been used to. Yeah. And um, she was brilliant. She was fantastic. She was like, right, let's sit down. Let's get a spreadsheet together. What are our costs? Mm. What, 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 what do we need to survive? Yeah. You know, he's worked, was working and still is working, you know, between the two of us. I was like, okay, yeah, we, do you know what? We got this. We can we can cover this. We're not 
we're, we're going to go on holiday to Margate and <laughs> not get plane for a while and and do that sort of thing. Um, and the other thing that, funnily enough, galvanised me to do it was having an eight-month-old kid. Yeah. Whereas ordinarily you should think, oh fuck, I've got to provide, I've got to do this, mm. I'm going to take the money. You know, I know I want to do my independent thing, but I'm going to take the money. Um, it was that he was eight months. Yeah. And it was the cheapest he's ever going to be. Yeah. There's no iPhones, there's no Air Max, you know, mm. there's there's nothing. And it's like, okay, this is the point of which we can earn a lot less. Yeah. Um, and, and, and at the point where you actually have to make it work. So you've got, you've got a time period to be like, fuck it. Let's, we've got five years until we actually, until to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, absolutely. And it's like, all right, you know, knuckle it down. It was me on my own. Then. So going back from, to peace of my heart, um, did you sign that to Good Company or did you sign that to Warner? No, 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 no. It was via Good Company to, and then what happened was is that it was June, and I put the record. I gave the record out to a few people. Jam was one of the first people to play it, right? Mister Jam, got a load of anybody listening? Yeah, Mister Jam on our Radio One at the time, um, and it got a load of interest. And but I hadn't got a distribution deal. I'd got artwork yeah. because of having previously set up a company. I hadn't got a distribution deal. I hadn't got anything. And understood, I sat down with, you know, management and stuff like that. And it's like, no, like, we really want to strike whilst the iron's hot. I'm like, I get it. So we licensed it onto Polydor. Um, he did an amazing job with it, you know, yeah. really did. But it was even with that record, right, it was, it was a worry because when it first got played, June or July, it kind of, people loved it. But it didn't react on the metrics that yeah, yeah. lots of labels judge, record Shazam, all of yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but people still loved it mm. and would like went in for it. And it was a joint thing. Actually, it was a joint thing between um, Polydor and Universal Germany with Arena over there. It yeah. was like totally gun hope. When it came to releasing it, right, for the first four weeks, bugger all happened. Really? Like, Nothing. We've released it, I think it was February, perhaps. And nothing happened. Like, Apple went for it, great. Spotify were indifferent. Nah. You know, Jam was playing it. Minimal Shazam reaction. And then it's like, what? how, how the fuck do we turn this around? Mm. And then Sarah Beaumont put it in on Party Anthems. Yeah. And I think it kind of broke Shazam records. Really? Shazam's on that show. It was like it went from zero, or it went from about 189 in Shazam. Yeah. 418 got that party anthems play and was at 12. Wow. And woke the whole of the industry up. Yeah. And then from there, because we always thought the reason why we're doing a joint deal with Germany and and the UK, we thought it'll probably sort of permeate in Europe and mm. come into the UK. Yeah. But it just flew and then the rest of the world caught up with it. Mm. You know. It's a crazy um, record. It's such a good record. It, and do you know what? It's it's funny, it's like three years later, it's still the template that you hear. Yeah. For so many pop dance records. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a melancholic vocal, uh, 
an extended note baseline coming in on something yeah. a bit deeper, a bit darker. It's still that, you know, even to the point where it's like, oh, come on, oh, we've got to try and break this <laughs> formula. We've got to try and break the Medusa formula. Yeah, but the, that's the thing with, well, you'll be the first person to kind of say this, but it's the thing with commercial music, right? If a formula works, why break it? Um, yeah, and yeah, I, I don't disagree with that at all. And and it, it's, it's, it's a worry, right? Mm-hmm. Because still everything has got a, in the commercial lane, a da-na-na-na, ba-da-la-la yeah. type hook ad-lib thing after it. And... That's when genres start eating themselves. Yeah, that's that's when innovation doesn't cut through in a in a pop sense. And yeah. and and normally, where the pop world leads, they take their they take they take the, the things that they hear to the left of the center, and and mold them or fuse them into you know something that becomes. Madonna was always brilliant at that. Yeah. You know, she'd make amazing pop records and go and choose the hottest from Jelly Bean Benitez to Marwa. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, just keep pushing the the boundary of what is a pop record. Um, you know, do you think? Do you think you can do that in electronic pop music though? Do you think? Because I, when was the last time that for you that dance music was pushed forward in the pop side of the industry honestly and not because i'm so associated with it but it was medusa okay but before at that point but before sorry, Medu- but, but before medusa like well, could, there was the 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 sort of the edm phase was yeah pushing it forward it suddenly became dance music for stadiums yeah as opposed to nightclubs yeah there are there are countless things that aren't necessarily dance artists that you hear other artists doing and even even now like pink pantheress yeah yeah like it's 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 pushing boundaries forward yeah and okay it's not four to the floor dance music and she's leaning heavily on um you know the, the amazing garage years mm. but reinventing that sound and, and it's like what's happening in drum and bass at the moment. Yeah. You know, there's a whole new breed of drum and bass producers that aren't sticking to the template of what is traditionally a drum and bass record. Yeah. And they're taking influences from trap, hip hop, drum and bass. Um, uh, I don't want to say happy hardcore, but you know. Well, it is. One, some like hardcore influences yeah. in there 100 you know there's there's all of the there's like you know and and it's actually permeating across europe you yeah. know i mean look the love it or lays it the lewd record that sampled men at work number one in germany for three weeks it's killing yeah yeah like i i that you know i i couldn't tell you i don't even know if it has ever happened mm. that there's been a drum and bass record that's been number one in germany ever no, and you see these records from Vibe Chemistry and Alchemist and and these whole new breed that are popping in Austria and mm. Denmark and you know Eastern Europe. Yeah, and it's because it's not just the traditional format in what we know as a country owning drum and bass yeah, coming yeah. from 
the hardcore Wednesday nights at Heaven, yeah. you know, and it being morphed into you know, it's it's like it's a it's a different thing. Well, the last and, the last commercial drum and bass guys that we had was like Chasing Status, uh, Rudiment, yeah. Rudimental, and they again they it was amazing what they did, but they had a formula. To, to that yeah. and it, it get, now it seems to be it's changing a little bit or also, also it's kind of going back to what we've spoke about many of times it's just different generations and it is and especially now after covid like how generations have changed on their listening patterns and how they listen to music and how they consume music um it's so different yeah 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 and also and it's like you know it's too easy to kind of get pious about an old record being sampled that was only five years ago. Yeah. You know, it's it's blatantly obvious here, especially with the advent of TikTok, that kids don't know records from two years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let alone us being precious about, well, you can't sample that, you can't do that, because that's only five years ago. It's like... Yeah, we all sound like fucking know. old people, really. Yeah. Like, the amount of yeah, times yeah, yeah, I've bitched to friends and to you lot and everything being like, oh my God, they've sampled that. Like, how? But I guess my question to you in that situation, is there longevity as an artist for that? Do you feel, as a no, label as no. a label point of view? No, I, you know, I'll stick my neck out on this one, which, you know, is obviously open, is quite subjective and open to debate. Of course, yeah, yeah. But I don't, I don't think there is. You mm. kind of like, it's the difference between fast food and a degustation menu. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's like... Those sort of things that are formulaic and ha- listen. Every time I hear another M1 um, bass organ, I'm like, ah, this can't work anymore, can it? Yeah. And then something just crushes the charts with it, and you're like, it worked. Well, I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's like a, or an M1 piano or a donk bass line mm. and in that commercial world, and you're like, no, 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 it can, you yeah. know, and and dance, I think came back from the doll drums as to my point from it kicking back in and almost three years ago, if not three years ago, because it's amazing what three to five years can do for a generation in music. Amazing. Where it was so consumed, you know, like black music consumed everything culturally sound. It was was amazing what it did, you know, and and then those kids that were listening to that who had never heard a dance record, Mm or suddenly like some dance music and like it was fresh to them yeah whereas pre the generation previous they were like tired of it they're like i'm hearing the same old shit mm. it's not inventing it's reinventing itself i'm all oh, this this really exciting thing over here but from an artist prospect to go back to your point i think it's very difficult to kind of have a template of what could be commercially successful yeah there's only a handful of people that are doing it. Joel Corey's crushing it from a commercial point of view, mm-hmm. and he's a brilliant, enigmatic person. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's an artist prospect in there long term, and he works Same so hard. Well. Like that, that, so hard. that dude works so hard. And he, and he's the loveliest man in showbiz. Yeah, yeah. Second to myself, <laughs> you know. And, but it's like, it, Tim's um, Jax Jones is the same. Yeah. You know, J- Tim Got a formula. Yeah, Jax is also yeah. like I remember working on breathe with jacks and he taught me the whole you know what you're saying like the hook and then la di da di da di da afterwards like he was the one that taught me about that and i'd never i always just looked at it it was like oh this fucking annoying 
part in the record that I can't stand, but everyone sings along to. And or, or why haven't they finished the lyrics on that? Exactly. Um, yeah. Stop being lazy. Like, yeah. Write a fucking good lyric. And then he was like, no, it's the international language. He's like, you can yeah. go to Hong Kong and no one speak a single word of English and they all can sing along to that record, that part of the record. They don't, they don't know what the fuck you're saying beforehand, but they can all sing along to that. And I'm like, that's when it clicked for me. I was like, wow, that's 100% true. And he's yeah. well, he's been the master of that for the last eight years. Yeah, well, like going back to Medusa, it's like Joris Vaughan did an amazing remix on it. I remember Nick Fanchulia Ashwire finishing on Joris's mix of it. Yeah, and the whole crowd just da da da. Yeah, da da. You're like, fuck. Yeah, Calvin was the yeah. first person. For, well, no, actually, looking back at it, for me, and this is just because of like the generation I grew up in faithless um insomnia or god is a dj those those were the first times where you would go see somebody and then leaving the festival or leaving the show everyone's like just humming yeah. and then calvin did it as well yeah but you and, know what the mad thing is it's like with faithless insomnia wasn't a hit first time round no. it had to go and be a hit in germany yeah and come back to the UK. It's everyone parted. Yeah. Everyone absolutely parted. They were like, not bothered. It's mad. You know, and it's just a huge, huge number one. Yeah. I had that back in at MCA with Living Joy, Dreamer. Yeah, wow. By Such a tune. First time round, you know, picked up that record, first time round. I think we got to, at best, 39, like that. And then it was, I always remember, it was a year or so down the line, and Nick Raphael, who was and still is a big wig in the game, you know, um, was bigger FFR Records and or London Records, sorry, and president of Capital Records. And he at that time worked in a sandwich bar that his dad owned around the corner from MCA, but ran vague in Leeds. Okay. This legendary nightclub, you know. Mm. And each every time we go in there, we're like, you've got to put that record back out, you know. Was a, he was like, it's our anthem. And he would say this for about nine months. Yeah. So it's like a year. And then a year later, it just came back. It was actually Rollo. Um, yeah, yeah. And Rollo Armstrong, yeah. uh, Faithless, that did the remix on it, that galvanized it to have something fresh about it. But the original was just like, okay. And then it was like huge number one. Mm. So it's, it's interesting it, that. what I guess that's the thing. Coming from a label owner, n- comparing it from back then to now it for me it feels very similar where you have to create hype of a record but what's your experiences nowadays of having to create hype on the record and how long do you wait for it to to actually release it it's weird because hype is created in so many different lanes at the moment you know there's the hype on TikTok because it's suddenly been a challenge. Mm. There's the hype on Instagram because loads of people are asking what the track ID is yeah. on someone playing something. Roberto Sorachi joins. Yeah, There's yeah. a big one that was an Instagram record. It was like... That was an expensive know, one. Uh, I, rem- yeah. <laughs> I remember being there that night and the reaction to, uh, on that video looks like the crowd, and the crowd went ballistic. Mm. But it's only because there wasn't a vocal for two hours prior to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that came in and it was like, off, you know. Um, so there's, there's so many, I mean, 
One of the things that I still think is detrimental to dance music is on air on sale. Mm. You know, everything, if you're an indie, you're kind of not as beholden to that. Yeah. You know, you can promo something at our early days, you can do all that sort of thing. If you're at a major, you have to be very beholden to those rules because they're set guidelines. Mm. You know, everybody wants equality as to when they're going to get the record. Yeah. But for dance music, it's like what it meant early days was, right, so you start your club promo the same time you go to radio, that you go to DSPs and mm. Spotify and Apple. And then if radio loved it, get on it early and and DSPs might like it. But genuinely, you know, dance music needs context. Yeah, totally. And and it needs that the ones that really work, whether or not they're pardon me, the more commercial ones or the cooler records, um, are the ones that people can refer to. Do you remember that night we were out? Mm. Oh, what a great night. And that was that tune. You know, that was that tune. If the first time they hear it is on Spotify or Apple or whatever their choice of platform is, or the radio, mm. it doesn't have any context. Yeah, yeah. It's and and it's not, it's the context and the attachment to that context, which will keep them coming back to that record to relive that moment. Yeah. You know, totally. and, and that's when you've got a winner. You know, that's that's that perfect combination because there are so many factors which decide the success commercially mm. of a record or not. And those factors all need to sort of align up within, not not exactly at the same time, but with fairly close proximity to one another. Yeah. If they're too far apart, it's, you know, you can have the best records in the world, but if those things kind of are too far apart, you, you, it just misses its opportunity. And this, especially now, there's so much more music. There's something brand new that comes in shiny yeah. and does it, you know, and takes people's attention away. It's not to say that something can't come out and a year later it's a hit without the aid of TikTok or any other kind of social platform. But, you know, it's harder than it was in the past. But, you know, TikTok is, on one hand, it's an amazing thing. On the other hand, it's, it's the absolute devil because yeah. it can it can propel you to being, or your record, to being a global phenomenon and then just disappear. But then at the same time, everybody wants to know what your TikTok plan is. Yeah. And unless it starts really organically and naturally, doesn't matter how much money you pump into it, it's it's not going to happen. You can pump money in mm. to amplify something that is happening, but trying to get that spark, it, you, you, you could bankrupt yourself trying to get that spark. Totally. And, and it wouldn't happen. So how much would you say releasing a record is on a percentage quality of record and then just pure luck it's always got to be quality yeah it's always you know what i it, it's something that whether or not it's warners or good company you know i'm just always trying to instill into any a and r man anything to do with that because you know what if, if you put a quality record out and it and it's not a hit initially it's got every chance of being a hit yeah. later down the line if something happens and it's a sink or it's, you know, someone 
grabs onto it. If it's a shit record, it always remains a shit record and people won't want to know. Yeah. Totally. You know. So, you know, music is the most important thing, mm. first and foremost. And to be really proud of what you do, regardless of whether it's 50,000 streams or 500 million streams, it's like, you know what? There's nothing about this that, I don't know if embarrassment is the right word, but there's nothing about this that I've, I feel regret about. As mm. a producer, I know what it's probably like where you're like, you'll listen back to records and go, could have done that better, yeah. or I wouldn't have done that there, or I would have changed the hi-hats here. Mm. But that's your always your development as a producer. Yeah, you know, yeah, if, yeah. if you're 100% happy with even the biggest hit, so yeah. your progress stops. Well, there's also so many people that we all know that have hit records that actually can't stand the hit records because they've had to play it so many times, and it's, it might be a great record to somebody else, but to them it's a fucking shit record because it's it just does their head in so much every time they yeah, hear yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. What when you when you say like I want to like as a label owner when you're how do you guys reflect? as a label when you're like, okay, we could have, we should have done this better or we could have done that better or, or is, is it every time is pretty much very similar and a lot of the processes are, are like, let's just it's hope. There's a, with me, there's a, there's a, a kind of multitude of things. Cause you know, I'm a frustrated closet producer. Yeah. So okay. I, there's one element where I'm listening back to records going, do you know what? My gut was saying I should have done this with it mm. and it should have sounded a bit more like this. <laughs> Fuck it. I should, you know, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. that. And in another way, timing is everything. Yeah. And the only things that you look back in hindsight are with really, did we put this out at the right time? Yeah. yeah. You know, were, were there too many other records sort of on its tail that sounded a bit like it or or you know was it something out on its own or were there just too many records around and we it didn't have a chance to breathe yeah and got sunk without trace um it's i'm just trying to think back over listen when i was initially at mca mm. i sound one i signed one pound fishman right the fact that i managed to keep my job Every day after that was a bonus, right? <laughs> I signed one pound fish man and kept my job for another five years, yeah. right? It's like, but but that came from somewhere, yeah. And it was an acapella, and the the, the black music crew were all just putting the acapella over the mm. beats. And I'm like, there's an opportunity here, yeah. Right? Okay, let's have a bit of fun with and 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 again, it's this thing that happens in dance music where like I'm like I'm gonna have a bit of fun. Gave the guy a bit of money, produced it up, had notoriety. There was this whole thing about like how he was deported, but his visa actually ran out anyway on yeah. the December 31st. So he's always going back to Pakistan. He'd yeah. been here three years, right? But he went back to Pakistan being the face of Vodafone, getting all of these yeah, ambassadorial yeah, yeah. contracts and sent me messages of like the house. He came to England to make money to send back to his wife and children. And then he's starting to show me like the house that he's in and in, like palatial thing. And it's like, fuck, do you know what? There's a real difference yeah. that has been made to that person's life mm. over what initially for me was a bit of fun. Yeah. I you can't know? believe you know the one pound fish guy. Yeah. I, listen, I had everybody hitting me up for voicemail messages where it's like, <laughs> like, 
everyone were like, you've got to do him, you've got, you've got to get him to do a, a, a voicemail message. You know, and he'd like, make a fortune on Cameo. <laughs> he needs to get on there. Made an absolute bomb doing those. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was on there the other day. Carol Bastin's on there. <laughs> oh, yeah, genius, yeah, genius. Yeah, I know. Okay, so what do you guys class as a success as a record when you release a record? Because it's very it's very easy. Well, it's not actually easy. That's an absolute bullshit. Like, let's say, for instance, for us, like when we're releasing on all we have is now. For anybody listening, good company runs all we have is now um so we license the records to good company and the good company team manage the record label for us but uh, we success is such a strange word when it comes to records or when it comes to life generally but i still don't know like myself and ryan set goals on the records at the beginning of before we even spoke to you about working with with the record label and we set goals on what we wanted the streams to be what we who we wanted to be playing how many radio spins we wanted to do and things like that when we hit those goals technically that's a successful record when we go past those goals it's even more of a success when we don't reach those goals it's not a success that's kind of how i how I yeah I, I my success barometer isn't based solely on streams because that like you know the, the the whole idea of when I set up good company was for it to be a thriving business that could be financially successful without having hits and that the hits were the icing on the cake totally because yeah. the pure hits business is for the majors yeah you know. They have very deep pockets. They have a huge back catalogue to absorb any losses and that sort of thing. But it's like, you know, and what and what what a large part of reinventing my headspace was is celebrating the small wins, mm-hmm. you know. And whether or not that was, you know, critical acclaim, notoriety, and then streaming success. Yeah. You know, that that's there's a different kind of, you know, on our, because we have good company and we have a sister label, which is unashamed commercial dance called Get Together. Yeah. You know, we had, we have a, a young kid, never existed before, called Rules, and just a beautiful, lovely record. It was yeah. like really like, like, didn't sound like anything else out there. Mm. You're like, all right, we had to create a profile on Spotify. We had to do all these sort of things. You know, we got him on French radio. We got loads. And, you know, he's what? I know by comparison to big child successes, it's a long way off. But he's on close to 20 million wow. stream now. And you're like really proud of that. Yeah, yeah, you massively, know, yeah. From zero to to that point is is especially when you read some of the stats, it's 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 a real successful job in that sense. Mm. When you read some of the stats of you know, and of course, it's a ratio because of how much music has been put into mm. Spotify and DSPs. But the percentage of things that don't even get beyond a hundred thousand streams, yeah, you know, it's eight percent mm. that are above a hundred thousand streams. Oh, really? And yeah, eight percent. I didn't even think. Right. I didn't even think of that. 
And so, and then when you try and kind of go, okay, so what's the percentage when it's a million plus? Mm. And it's four, it's like four point something. Wow. And you're like, okay, well, we're in this category that consistently does that. Yeah. And punches above that and has really big commercial moments. So, mm. but then as you know, if, if you're making some cooler music, it's like, what's the success? Has this opened more doors for me to play somewhere? Yeah. Has this introduce me into another market but i guess i'm i'm more so questioning that as a label so, because yeah like for me like i just think releasing music is a success for an artist generally it yeah. helps you unless it's a shit record it generally will take you a step further to where you were before releasing that record um it's very especially at the moment where uh, sorry will uh, uh, but especially at the moment where any length of spell out of the releasing game mm. is almost like starting from zero again. Yeah. You know, continuity is everything. Yeah, I agree. It, it really is. And, and, and what I've learned is that, and the landscape changes so rapidly at the moment, you know, from what was the pattern of play three months ago could be completely different now because yeah. suddenly a playlist has been personalized and it's not editorial. Yeah. And, you know, there are so many different factors that change the landscape and you're constantly having, like, we don't just review our own records. I analyze because there is a very large nerd in me, but, you know, I analyze other people's records. Who was the first to play them on radio? Yeah. What were the first playlists they had? You know, what was the trajectory of growth? Where did it stop? What made it kick on from what looked like a slowdown? You know, Radio 1 at the moment, it used to be getting 20 or 30 plays, specialist plays to be in contention for the the Radio 1 playlist. Yeah. It's now 50 to 70. Yeah, I heard that the other day. You know, Ben Kim's um, record, uh, Don't You Want, what's it? Don't You Want um, yeah, Somebody yeah. to Love. Yeah. 72 plays before it had playlist consideration. You know, so yeah. that, that's, a, that's a real mitigating factor as to suddenly how the landscape is changing because they're being inundated with so much music, they, they're taking longer to see if, it has, if it's standing the test of time, mm. which in itself, I understand, but, you know, 72 plays could be four months of which you've burnt out at Apple and Spotify yeah. by then. Well, I, I think that's the thing. It's like the longevity is something that we talk about all the time is the longevity of a record and how long do we work a record until we bin it off and move on to the next one. And it's kind of a tough because I, I've heard it so many times with my friends and in in the genre that, that I release in is that it's like you've got two weeks to get any like hype or anything like that and if you don't have any any like tickles in the those first two weeks it's kind of on to the next which is fucking depressing if you think i know we don't look at it like that we're we're generally a month to two months and we know roughly where we're at listen i always go under the adjective and so far you know the team are amazing at good company because i always have to say that because they're all (laughs) um and and um but Again, it's that celebrating the small wins thing that I said earlier, mm. where you're like, if there's any positivity, if you're up two percent, yeah, if you're up, you know, if, if there's an increase in Shazams, if there's whatever, 
don't let it go. Mm. Keep working it. Because as a plugger from my past, you know, the one thing that made the difference to have a reputation about being a, a good plugger was just make sure that everyone is aware of it. And yeah. you, you, if you've got a dodgy record, the industry have got three types of records, right? They've got the records that make everyone look good. Yeah. And really they've had very little involvement and all the power is to the artist and the A&R, the marketing, the yeah. promo are basically all just running behind that record, trying to keep up with it. Yeah, yeah. Right. But it showers everyone in this glorious light of success, whether mm-hmm. or not it's, huge commercial or critical, you know, club success, anything, it, it, it covers. Then there's the middle ground record where it's really good, but it needs to be worked. Yeah. And it could it could possibly get there. And then, then there's there's the records that doesn't matter what you say and how much you got it, you know, you, know, you read the signs and it's done. Yeah. You know, uh, there aren't any positives. It isn't up. It isn't doing this. You're like, okay, you know, I'm not going to get anyone to play this. And that translates into the areas of what we do and, and, and label owners and stuff like that, where, you know, as a plugger back then, it's like, so long as everyone knew that you did your best and you got as many people to hear it and mm. you worked it to the best of your ability, because otherwise I don't necessarily agree with the two week adage where, cause so much can change. Totally. You yeah. know, I'm not saying that, Lots don't disappear within two weeks. I'm aware that that might be the case, but you know, it's 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 that thing of we've got a reputation of working records mm. and doing as best as we can and doing the best for the record that we possibly can, as opposed to some other labels that have a much higher output than us mm. that just chuck it out and wait for the record to react without necessarily working it. If it doesn't yeah. react, we move on. If it does, okay, chase it, you know? And even if our records don't react initially, we're like, right, what, what, where else can we go? What else can we do? Yeah. Where, where can we find some love? All right, okay, we're getting blanked in the UK. Let's try France. Let's mm. try Germany. You know, let's try Holland. Yeah. Let, let's do this. Let's, let's, try and get some some momentum going on yeah um which you know it, it it does it does prohibit how much you can put out because there's only so much that can be the team's priority totally yeah yeah no that makes sense with good when you open good company um and get together what did you look at from a major label from working in a major to then going to an independent what what were your things that you were like i don't want to do what the majors do the main thing was speed of decision Mm. you know um being decisive over things quite quickly you know trusting your gut again yeah after having done this for so long um of like do you know what? I don't want to. Is it a great record? Yes, there's a little bit of thinking. What are what you? I always have to think what the entry points for the record are. Yeah. Who's going to be the first person to play this at radio? Where, you know, how can we make it travel from that first play to anywhere else if it goes well? But the, you know, the the process of approval and deliberation and questioning over something that. With 
your knowledge and experience, which is all that you can rely on in this, yeah. you know, you believe in um, not being subject to review. Mm. Um, the majors do actually a lot of good things apart from Pivot. having patience. Okay. You know, mm. they, they, they do, a, you know, they do a lot of good things, but they're also stretched. Yeah. A lot of the people are working on other projects that aren't dance and mm. it's, you know, so the, 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 the major systems, um, you know, the really good teams at majors have quite a self-contained unit of people working solely on dance music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, where everyone has three or four people or, you know, ministry being 15 plus and, and that sort of thing. It's like, all we do is dance music, mm. you know, and we understand that we're going to have to keep on pushing this for a bit. You know, like, because there, there were quite a lot of circumstances where... No, I kept on wanting to sign a record and the, the signed a few records, you know, after a very lengthy process for that were very cheap, that were really big hits. Yeah. They're like, fuck me, the ordeal that I had to go through mm. to get that over the line where I could easily have lost it somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and then and then told you so doesn't wash. Yeah. Do you find that everyone has Yeah, a- yeah, totally. Do you find that in with good company um where have you ever got yourself into a bidding war with the majors? Because I know you guys don't spend the amount of money of what a major does because your outlays are a lot lower. Um, yeah. I mean, our colla- it's, it's amazing the, the pandemic we suffered with a little because our business model is like, this is collaborative. Yeah. If we win, we win together. Yeah, yeah. Right. You get half the, you get half the spoils. We get half the spoils. If it doesn't work, we got to take one on the chin, yeah. but that's the name of the game, right? And there's an amazing amount of people, Fisher, losing it being one, yeah. offered stupid amounts of money for the record. Like, you're in first. I like what the deal is. Yeah. I like that I'm going to win. I'm going with you mm-hmm. on this. Um, and in the pandemic, when DJing fees disappeared, yeah, yeah. you know, understandably... DJs were like, I'm being offered 50 grand for this record. I've got to take it. And we'd get to the 11th hour. Yeah. And then suddenly they'd come in and it'd be like, I've been offered 50 grand for this record. I'm like, I get it. Yeah. You know, take the money, man. Yeah. You know, do that. Um, We've just got to be earlier. We're, you know, earlier. If, if it's, it's, unless, unless, you know, 30, 40, 50 grand, means not much to someone because of the fees that they're getting from a live yeah, yeah. situation you know it, if if they're not earning hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds from their lives 50 grand makes it makes a difference mm. so you know we've got to be in there earlier and take a few more risks yeah. because even though it's a collaborative thing and we don't hand out an advance there's still a fair amount of cost totally. to even putting out the club record, yeah, 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 let alone sure. when it starts getting some trajectory and you need to start putting more money into it to keep it going. Mm. No, I totally so, agree. But I think also the difference between getting a record for 50 grand or 100 grand, your splits are way smaller as an artist. 
And mm. like I've had countless of friends that have taken that payday, which sounds great at the time, but 50 grand, if it's not just a single deal, if it's a multiple single deal or an album deal, 250 grand, even 500 grand, it can kind of completely slow down your release schedule. You're, you don't own half of your music. You don't, and the, the deal terms are ridiculous. Yeah. So there's the pros and cons, right? You would think that in, you would think that you signed to a major record label and you're going to have hit records because they're hit, yeah. hit, hit making places, but they're really not. Um, to a certain no, extent, I mean, not, not unless you're savvy. There's there's some people that I sort of say to when they're doing a deal and they're getting off at a hundred grand. I'm like, ask for fifty and make them put the other fifty as yeah. a guaranteed commitment into marketing. Yeah, yeah, right. Because the amazing thing is, is that they might sign a record for a hundred grand, but then they'll put it out there in the same way that an indie would, yeah, and see what it does mm. without any. There are their own internal triggers to like. Yeah. Oh, it's doing this now. So yeah, we're going to put this amount of money. You know, it's doing mm. that. You know, you're like, so it doesn't confirm or deny, but it, it definitely doesn't confirm success. Yeah. Want to stop you right there? Let this be an edit point because I am bursting for a wee. Oh, mate, we don't need to edit that out. Let's wrap this motherfucker up. I thought you looked really? a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, 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 it's fine. That's fine. But I'm swiveling in my chair. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, Jesus oh. Christ, he needs to piss, doesn't he? Um, one last question. Yeah. One last question. Sure. That I've started asking people at the end of the podcast. Um, what is the one bit of life advice you would give somebody right now? Go about your business with respect. Go about your business with, because this 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 holds on to you. This you know this. If you if you can have these traits for yourself, mm. right? And this might seem a bit airy fairy, but I honestly believe it, it. It sees you through. If you can go about your business with you know respect, um, uh, a certain amount of loyalty. Um, and I won't say trust because trusting everyone is quite naive, mm. but you know, you, you've got to hold yourself to the standard that you expect of others. Yeah. Right. And if someone doesn't live up to that, then they ain't worth doing business with. Mm. Right. Because you, you've got, to, you've got to lead by example in these situations. And it's, it's a business full of cowboys. It's a business full of, you know, chances, and you've got to be able to cut through all of that, you know, and have belief in what you do, um, you know, and you know, from a tech, there are so many different things as a, as a point of advice to give on technicality, on business, on, you know, if you're setting up a business, good lawyer, good accountant, yeah, you know, it like is a must. Right. Otherwise, you're going to get shafted and you're going to owe the tax man a hell of a lot of money and you're never going to make another record again. Yeah. Right. But unto yourself, it's like, I guess to summarize, you know, treat others how you expect to be treated. But it goes a long way. It, it's, it's like it holds you in good stead because shit goes wrong all the time. Um, things don't work. Uh, things that you thought were going to be a huge success 
uh, end up being a failure. Things yeah. that you thought were okay end up being a huge success. But you know, if you can carry through you with you uh, a sense of pride in who you are, how you go about business, and therefore also what you do, whether or not that's making music or mm. PR or doing whatever, you know, it will see you through. Mm. It will it will it will help you rise above a lot of the bullshit that exists out here. Love and that. a lot. That's awesome. Thanks, mate. Go take a piss. Absolute um, pleasure, man. Thanks for coming Always. on. Uh, how can people follow Good Company and how can people reach out to send you records? Uh, info at goodcompany.co is the email at always be good company is the tags for Insta and everything else, you know, and between those two, we're always here. Legend. Thanks, mate. Keep safe. See you soon. Mate, it's Big Willie. Peace. See you in a bit. Ah, no, it's a wrap. Love that conversation. I feel like we could have gone on forever, um, but we actually have a meeting in half an hour with the label crew, so had to wrap it up and he needed a piss. So big ups to everybody for listening. Uh, speak to you very soon. Um, Till next time. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.